John chapter 15 this morning. We're going to read two verses. John chapter 15, verses 7 and verses 8. Verses 7 and 8. John 15, verse 7 and verse 8. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. John 15, verse 7 and 8. Now, we are in the middle of the last words that our Lord is giving to His disciples before He goes to Calvary. In chapter 14, our Lord has taught His followers concerning faith. He's taught them about love. He's taught them about obedience. And then he talked to them about the necessity of the Holy Spirit of God being with them and in them so that they could live out their Christian life. In chapter 15, our Lord instructs his disciples of the necessity of a spiritual union with himself. And that that union will bring forth fruit as they abide in him. He taught the necessity of the spiritual union with a living God. And he uses the illustration of a vine and its branches. And true Christianity is revealed then in the life of the one who abides in the Lord Jesus Christ. Using the metaphor of a vine and his branches. Our Lord taught that there are two kinds of people who join themselves to him. The first are those who, by grace, repent of their sins and believe the gospel message and are joined to the Lord Jesus Christ, and He is joined to them. But the second are those who seek, by some man-made religion, to join themselves to the name of Jesus. For those who are true believers, our Lord taught that there is no greater relationship than being vitally joined to Him. Abiding in Christ meant that we would continue, or means that we would continue to exercise faith in our Lord. That there would be a daily trusting in Him, a daily seeking of Him, a daily resting in Him, and daily trusting His love for us, and daily trusting His promises to us. We hold on to Him, and He is holding on to us, and we hold on to His Word, and His Word is abiding in us. In John chapter 15, verse 7, our Lord taught the necessity of abiding in Him, and then added, then added, that it was also abundantly necessary that His Word abide in us. That both were necessary. That the true Christian cannot live without the Word of God. We cannot learn of our God. We cannot learn of our Savior. We cannot learn uh, of who He is without the Word of God. We do not know what true Christianity is without going to the Word of God. We do not know how to live as a Christian. What is the Christian life? Well, we, we find it spelled out for us in the Word of God. We do not know how to live in, in this world as a light and salt without the Word of God. And we don't know what we should believe 
about God or Christianity or about the church or about life or living. We don't know any of these things except we come to the Word of God and it tells us about it. That's the only thing we know. When we were lost, we didn't have any idea of what the Word of God taught. We knew nothing about who God was. And then God saves us and He puts this book in our hand and He tells us to read it and memorize and meditate. And He says, learn, learn. And so we begin this whole process of learning of God and Christianity. And we come to this understanding that abiding in Christ and His Word abiding in us ensures that we'll have the kind of life that will bring glory to God. And that brings us to verse 8, where Jesus Christ says to His disciples, Herein is my Father glorified. This is what it is. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so, you shall, be my, so shall you be my disciples. Herein. And I've told you before, every word of God is important. Every word in the word of God is important. The word herein, found in John 15, 8, refers back to what he's already been talking to, about. It refers to abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ and to the word of God in us. In this, God is glorified. If I am abiding in Christ, if the Word of God is abiding in me, God is glorified in my life. It also refers to our prayer life as we looked at the last part of verse 7 uh, uh, in the last couple of weeks. It refers to our prayer life and that prayer life related to the Word of God. To the Word of God. And so herein, in these things that I've been talking to you about, the Father is glorified in you. But not only in that going back, but also herein in the words that I'm getting ready to speak to you. Will my Father or is my Father glorified in you? And so it has this idea of looking back to what's already been said. And it has this idea of looking forward to what is coming next. What's coming out of his mouth next? Remember by now they're on the road from Bethel going to, uh, to Jerusalem. It's late at night. They come into Jerusalem. They come into the Garden of Gethsemane later on uh, at the end of chapter 16. And so he's talking to them. He's instructing them. He only has a few hours left before he goes to Calvary's cross. And he's instructing them concerning true Christianity. People need to see something of the glory of God in our life. In, in this, herein, is my Father glorified, verse 8. What? That you bear much fruit. That you bear much fruit. Now, our Lord had already taught this, going all the way back to the early days of His ministry. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. Our Lord is instructing these early young Christians with his word and he says let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and then what does he say and glorify your father which is in heaven you show up as a Christian and people see that and if they see the reality of God in your life then they're going to glorify God in heaven from it many of the instructions, much of the instruction from our Lord Jesus Christ has to is centered around the good works that Christians do. 
And we may prove that we are true Christians and show that we are true Christians by those works. But, and this is what verse 8 says. Let me read the whole thing. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and then what? So shall you be my disciples. And so we have this this instruction. We're going back to what I've been telling you up to this point, and then we're going further. And it's about fruit. It's been about faith. It's been about love. It's been about obedience, about the necessity of the Holy Spirit in you so that you can do these things. It's about abiding in me and my word abiding in you. Now it's fruit. Now it's good works. And all of that to bring God the glory. Not to bring attention to ourselves or to our church, or to our religion, but to bring God the glory. And so, this theme continues. The apostles pick it back up. After the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, and then he ascends to heaven, he takes his place upon his throne in heaven, he rules and reigns from heaven upon the earth. Now, the apostles go forth. And what is their message? Well, Philippians 1, verse 11. Philippians 1, verse 11. Listen to the scriptures. The Apostle Paul talking to a church like ours, perhaps a few more members, but like ours, talking to a church, writing them a letter, and saying to them that they should be filled with the fruits, plural, fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. They come by means of Jesus Christ being in you, and then unto the glory and praise of God. That you should be filled with the fruits of righteousness of what is right, good and right fruits. They, those fruit, that work comes by Jesus Christ being in you. And then it results in God the Father being glorified. Philippians 1 verse 11. It's the same exact message that the Lord Jesus Christ taught while he was on the earth. It is hard. Listen. It is hard to put together a list of what is righteous fruits. What is that? What is righteous fruits? Well, it's hard to put together a list because righteous fruit flows from the inside out. It comes as a result of Jesus Christ being in you, the hope of glory. It comes out because the Spirit of God is in you and you've got a new heart and new desires and it flows from the inside out. The Jews had this list of things to do, and you check it off every day. Oops, I messed up there. I better take a lamb to the priest and get sacrificed. They got this whole list of things to do. But Christianity is a life in the soul. It is God in you. And it flows out of you. And so, what do I do to do the fruits of righteousness? Well, what is that? Well, I'm not going to give you a list this morning. In case you were wondering, I'm not going to give you a list this morning. Because those outward actions, those outward workings that flow from an attitude of a heart that loves God and loves its neighbor, from a foundation that we love God and we love our neighbor, that, that list is innumerable, the things that we do. And how different this is, true Christianity is, from man-made religion. True Christianity, true Christians point to God alone for their source of salvation. 
Yes, God has had mercy upon my soul. Are you a Christian? Yes, yes, I am. How did you become one? God had mercy upon my poor soul. The Lord has done thus and thus to me. He has done thus and thus. He has saved me. He has forgiven. And our conversation goes back to what God has done for us, not what we have done for Him. We do not say, are you a Christian? Yes, I was baptized. I'm a Christian. Are you a Christian? Well, I'm a member of a church. Yes, I'm a Christian. Are you a Christian? Well, you see that blue box back there? Every Sunday I drop something in it. Yes, I'm a Christian. No, we don't, we don't come to those things. Are you a Christian? Yes. Let me tell you about what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for my soul. True Christians point to God alone for the source of their salvation. They point to God's glory for the purpose of their good works. Why are you doing this? Because I love the Lord. Are you doing this to get saved? Uh, no. Are you doing this to keep saved? No. Why are you doing this? Because I love the Lord. And God deserves to be glorified in my life. Our Father in heaven may be glorified and not us by our works. And they point to the glory of His grace as the ultimate reason why they gain access into heaven. You going to heaven? Yes, I am. How are you getting there? Can you tell me how? By grace or you saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Grace, what is that? It is God doing something for you that you don't deserve. It is God working in you to change you from the inside out. But, but didn't you do something? Oh, well, I, I can't point to anything that I've done. Is Christ your Savior? Yes. Did you call upon Him? Yes. I needed a Savior. I called upon Him. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, why did you do that? God did something for me. That's the testimony of Christianity. But, all who are the converts of man-made religion point to their own works. They point to the fact that they are followers of their religion. And that's the source of their salvation. My religion promises me this. If I do thus and thus, my religion says I'm going to get to heaven. They point to their religious efforts or to the, their obedience to their religious rules and regulations to prove they are saved. Uh, don't you see that I'm a Christian? My religion says this and I'm doing it. Don't you see I'm a Christian? My religion requires this of me and I'm doing it. And that's the language of a man all caught up in works. Trying to be the best that he can based upon what his religion tells him. And coming short. They point to their religious efforts. And their religious obedience. And their religious leaders can point to that person. See this one? He's my convert. See how good he is. And the Jews would do that. Here is a convert. I got a new convert. And Jesus said, you've made him twofold the child of hell other than yourself. You've turned him into something that is not right and true and good. And they point to their own efforts. Oh, God is helping me, I know, but I got to do this. They point to their own efforts as the ultimate reason why they gain heaven's entrance. I've been good enough. I've done what I've been told. I've done what they told me to do. 
What a contrast that is from true Christianity. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, but that fruit comes from the inside out. As the message develops this morning, we will see these things. In the natural world, remember John 15 is about the vine and the branches. The whole of this, all of these verses up to verse 8 is about a vine and the branches. And the branches are fixed to the vine and, the, and the, the life of the vine goes into the branch and the branch bears fruit. Now, he's using this as an, uh, as an illustration for us. All, in all the natural world, the only fruit that may be seen is that which is external. I got a garden. Some of you do too. How many of you took a squash out there and tied it on a squash plant last night? And woke up this morning and said, oh, I got a squash. How many of you did that? Nobody. Nobody. How many of you went out to that tomato plant and tied a nice ripe tomato on it? And so the next morning you go out and say, oh, look, I got a tomato. No, you don't do that, right? I mean, is it, Brother Pat, don't you know anything about gardening? <laughs> How many of you plucked a peach? That somebody tied it on. Somebody put it there for you. No. What happens? You go out to your garden and there's a squash. And you've been watching it. Because first it was the blossom and then a little thing and then it grew. And today's the day you're going to pick it. Fruit. Where did that come from? It came from inside that plant. And it came out. Where did that peach come from? Inside that tree and it came out. Where did that grape hanging on that vine come? Inside and it came out. The natural world testifies to the spiritual truth of what Jesus Christ is saying. Everyone knows that natural fruit hangs on the outside of the tree or the plant or the vine because it came from the inside out. Nobody tied it on for us. And this is true of Christianity. Christian fruit is designed by God to be seen of men. And it's based upon this same truth. And we don't go around tying all these little good works on us and we walk around dangling like with good works. Can't you see how good I am? Because I do this and do that. No, it comes out from the inside of our heart. It is something that is not attached to us by our efforts, but it comes out of our heart and shows up in our life. All man-made religion have their list of things that define fruit for you. And there's some good things. And I'm not going to say they're not good things, because they are. And their, their list, though, becomes the standard of, of that good standing that I have in my religion. Christian says, my good standing with God is on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for me, not what I have done for Him. Now, if you're in one of those religions, or if you come out of one of those religions like I have, you know that that's what I'm saying is true. And you've been taught things, and this is what you've got to do. But what's the problem with that? Think with me a minute. 
What's the problem with that? The energetic religious person can and often will produce many good works. And it's recognized by the world as good and recognized by their religion as good. Mother Teresa labored in India, worked among the poorest of the poor on the street of Calcutta. And she worked uh, for years and years and years. And when she was old, she came back to America. She was interviewed by Time magazine. And they, they, they asked her this question, with all of your life given to the poor, and do you think you have done enough to get into heaven? And her answer was, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. How many of us have measured up to her standard of good works? Not any of us in this room could do those things that she's done. And in the end, all that external stuff, she has no hope yet that she's even a Christian. What a sad thing. She was energetic. She was full of zeal for her religion. But let me ask this question. What about the sickly? The elderly? The weak? What about the imprisoned that can't go and do those things? What about them in that religion? That can't do the same things? Can't accomplish the same thing that she did? If this is the kind of fruit that Jesus is speaking of, then some will not be able to accomplish it. And they will think, oh, I don't have any fruit. I must not be a Christian. Or I can't do what they're doing for Christ. And, and, and so I'm not a Christian. I don't have the right fruits to prove that I'm a Christian. What a, what a miserable way of life. And yet on the other hand, true Christianity requires fruit. The Word of God reveals that Christians will have fruit. Here it is and before us. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Christians have fruit, but they have fruit a different way. In summary, and I'm going to open it up to us, but in summary, let me make this statement. Christian fruit is that which flows from a new heart. A new heart also will I give you, God has said. It flows from new desires. New desire to please God and not myself. New desire to glorify God and not myself. Empowered by the grace of God in us. And lived out by the faith of God and based upon the word of God. Because the spirit of God is empowering us to do it. That's the summary statement. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. In Ephesians 2 verse 10 he says we are his workmanship. We are a product of God's work. We are his workmanship. And we have been created in Christ unto good works. God has worked in our heart, changed our heart, brought us to repentance and faith. We have believed in Christ and all of that resulting in good works in our life. Resulting in good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. In another verse, Colossians, two, uh, Colossians 1 and verse 10. 
Colossians 1 verse 10, he says, the same apostle says, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work. And then adds, an increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, he writes close to the end of his life to a man named Titus in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 verse 14. And he says to Titus, speaking of Christ who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people who were zealous of good works. And so Paul's writings are full of exhortations that Christians produce good works. But Paul never puts a definition on the word. He just says, Christian, be involved in good works. Here's a list for you. No, he doesn't do that. Now, there's things he said, this is what you should be doing, this is what you should be doing, but he doesn't give that as a summary of all of good works. James, though, James writes in chapter 1, verse 27, and says, pure religion and undefiled before God, and the Father is this. And now he defines pure religion for us. If you want to know what religion is, you want to know what God's religion is, James 1, verse 27. What is it? Well, he says, visit the fatherless, that's orphans, the widow in their affliction, and to keep yourself unspotted from the world. Pure religion has to do with orphans and widows? Well, I, I thought it had to do with something great for me to do. You know, I need to do something great to prove that I'm a Christian. Let me, let me, let me stand before the Red Sea like Moses. Let me, let me do this, like Joshua before Jordan, and watch the water. For I, I want to be known in Christianity. And James says, you want to be known for pure religion? Why don't you go visit the orphans and the widows and take care of the poor? Oh, but, but nobody's going to take notice of that. Listen to the scriptures, Acts 9. Acts 9 and verse 36. Peter comes into, uh, into Joppa. And they come to him, he's the apostle. And they come to him and they talk to him about a woman. Uh, her name is Tabitha, but they call her Dorcas. Okay? Uh, and she's, she's dying and she's dead. And, and they want her, him to do something. Can you do something? Listen to Acts 6 in, verse, uh, in verse, chapter 9, verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a certain disciple, she's a believer, whose a disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. Listen to the next words, Acts 9, 36. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds. That means, see, alms is given to the poor, full of deeds of giving to the poor. This woman, Tabitha Dorcas, she is full of good works. Well, what was she doing? What was she doing? Because that's the kind of, I want to be known as a person full of good works. Well, in verse 39, all these widows come to Peter. And their hands are full 
of clothing and they're weeping for Dorcas. And verse 39 says, And all the widows stood by him, Peter, weeping. And, and look, this is showing their coats and, and, verse, and their garments, which Dorcas made while she was with them. Here comes this group of widows with clothes in their hands. Let me tell you about Dorcas. I was cold and she made me a coat. Let me tell you about this woman good, full of good works. I needed a dress. Mine was tattered and she made me a dress. Let me tell you about this woman full of good works. She spent her day making clothes for people who were without. Sitting in her room. She didn't have a sewing machine, ladies. Needle and thread. Sitting in her room. Where's Dorcas? I don't know. where. What's she doing? I don't know what she's doing. She's never around. We're out on the street. We're passing out tracks. But Dorcas, where's she at? I don't know where she's at. And then she gets sick. Peter, let me tell you about this woman who is full of good works. And then the crowd comes forward. Listen to Matthew 25. On the day in which Jesus Christ returns and gathers the nations together. On his right hand he puts the sheep and on his left he puts the goats. He separates his people from the lost. And then he says to his sheep, you come into my father's kingdom. It's been prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. And he says to them, Matthew 25, 34. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, the sheep, the people of God. Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For, because, I was hungry and you gave me food or meat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. You gave me drink. I was a stranger. You took me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you came and sat by my sick bed and you visited me. And I was in prison and you came to me in prison and visited me. That whole list of things that Jesus Christ speaks about, you hardly hear anything about it in Christianity today, do you? You hardly hear anything about this kind of good works where a Christian looks out on the world around him. And he takes an assessment of the world around him, his community, his neighbors. And his neighbor is sick, and what can I do? And my neighbor is this, and I, and I can help. And, and, and he doesn't look for glory, and he doesn't look for praise, and he doesn't look for honor from men. And he just goes about his daily life doing good to people. And nobody finds out about it until the judgment day. And they said, well, when did we do that to you? And he said, when you did it to the least of my children, you did it for me. The summary of the scriptures is that Christians are people who have good works. The list is never given to us necessarily. It shows the way of life, the lifestyle that looks out to other people around you 
and ask the question, what can I do to help them? Sometimes it's a word spoken. Sometimes it's a track. Sometimes it's a Bible study. Sometimes it's a dress. Sometimes it's a plate of food. What can I do to minister to those people? And it's answered by a thousand different answers. Christian fruit flows from the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. It comes out because God is in us. Go to Galatians chapter 5. It does speak about fruit. And it does give us a list. But we lead, read the list. And it doesn't give us things to do. It shows us what we are. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 and verse 23. Speaking about the fruit of the Spirit. If the Spirit of God is in you. If you are a Christian, the Spirit of God is in you. If the Spirit of God is in you, then this is what's going to come out. Fruit comes out from the inside. What is it? Well, Paul writes to these people and says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy. Peace. Long-suffering. Bearing long with people. It has something to do with gentleness and goodness and faith. It has something to do with meekness. By the way, let me just insert here. Meekness is not weakness. Moses was the meekest man on earth, the scripture says. And he led a nation of a more than a million people out of Egypt into the promised land. Near, near to the border of the promised land. The meekest man. The word meekness has to do with you giving up your rights for the cause of Christ, for the cause of God. I live for God and not for myself. Even when God said, I'll destroy this nation and make a nation out of you, He said, no, Lord. Don't do that. Remember your promise to these people. Gave up His rights to lead and a family and, and, and a, he was a sheepherd he was a, a rich man both in Egypt and then he was made another rich man in the, in, the, in the desert and he gave up for Christ to follow what the instructions of his God and the Bible says of him he was the meekest of all the men on the earth and God used him now he's not a weak man stood before Pharaoh in boldness not weak but meek the only one greater than him was the Son of God in terms of meekness. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek, not weak. I am meek and lowly in spirit. Meekness and then temperance. As the Spirit of God working in us to give us a sober-minded look at life, a sober approach to life, and day by day, what can I do to help? What can I do to bring glory to God? The fruit of the Holy Spirit, not in the list of things that I do, but in the character that God produces in me. Also, Christian fruit flows from the presence of a new heart that loves God and loves our neighbor. Paul again, talking about this in 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, talking about love or charity, the old English word. This is what it is. You say, I love my neighbor, I love God. This is what it is. Again, not a list of things to do, but a list that defines the character of love. 
charity suffers long. It's kind. It does not envy. It envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. Doesn't lift itself up. If I love my neighbor, if I love God, I am not trying to lift myself up and make me to be something. I'm trying to lift God up in their presence. It does not vaunt itself. It does not lift itself up. It is not puffed up with some kind of pride. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Love does not sin with your neighbor. Behave yourself. It does not seek her own. Instead, love seeks another. Isn't that true? God having loved the world, what is it? He's not seeking something for himself. What does he do? He sends his son. For the sake of others. That's what love does. It doesn't seek for me. Well, what about me, preacher? What about me? No, what about God? That's the question. Not me, but God. It doesn't seek its own. It's not easily provoked. It thinketh no evil. Well, Brother Pat, what do you think? Well, you know, I don't know. And I'd rather not judge that situation because I just don't know. Right? Ah, but how many of us said, yeah, I think. I've even done it. And then had to back off and say, you know what, I really don't know. So I need to back off of that. Thinketh no evil. Rejoices not in iniquity. When we see someone fall in sin, yeah, I knew it. No. Our hearts break. Why, Lord? How, Lord, did that happen? It doesn't rejoice in iniquity. But it rejoices in the truth. It rejoices in what's in this book. And we read to find out what is true so we can rejoice in it. And find joy in what God tells us is true. It bears all things. Believeth all things. Hopeth all things. Endureth all things. If you're a Christian, you're going to have to endure some things. Charity never faileth. But whether they be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether they be tongues, they shall cease. Whether they be knowledge, it shall vanish away. And in these three things, Paul is saying those special gifts that God, that God gave to his church in those early days were going to slowly pass away. But there was one thing that God gave that he never passes away. When God loved, gave his love into the heart and poured his love into the heart of his people. We love him because he first loved us. But these other things, they might pass away. They may not always be present. But love is always there. Biblical, solid, sound, biblical love is always there. And it bears fruit. It bears fruit. By the way, there's some argument over when those things pass. I have an understanding on that if you're willing to sit with me and talk to me about it. But I, those things will pass. God said it would. But love won't. Love won't. And then the fourth thing about Christian fruit is this. That Christians, every Christian bear fruit because they are tied to the vine. John 15, 2, remember? Every branch that beareth fruit is purged so it can bring forth more fruit. 
John 15, verse 8, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Every Christian is bearing fruit. If you're a Christian, whether you're one day old in the Lord, three months old in the Lord, 45 years old in the Lord, you're bearing fruit. Mark chapter 4, verse 8 and 20. Mark chapter 4, verse 8 and 20. Jesus is talking about the parable of the soils, and he comes to the good soil. And he says in verse 8, And other fell on good ground, and, and did yield fruit. Uh, that sprang up and increased and brought forth some 30 and some 60 and some 100. And then in verse 20, he's giving an explanation and he's talking about the gospel coming to people. And he says, this good ground is those people who, in verse 20 says, the, the, sown on, the seed has been sown on good ground and they hear the word and they receive it. And when they hear and receive it, they bring forth fruit. And then he repeats it and says, some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. That's important. The English phrase in verse 20, they increased and brought forth, comes from a Greek word which means that the children of God, once they become a child of God, begin producing and keep on producing. Some 30, some 60, some a hundred. Even though some might only produce 30 at this particular stage in their life, some only 60, some at a hundred, but they're all producing. They're all producing. Their fruit bearing is directly related to being connected to the seed, to the plant, to the Word of God. They hear it, they receive it, and it works in them and produces fruit. When they hear it and they receive it, they live by it, and when they live by it, fruit is born. Young Christians? Yes, young Christians. Old and mature Christians? Yes, them too. They all bear fruit. Strong, healthy Christians, standing firm and having stood firm for years? Yes, they bear fruit. What about a weak, sickly, bedridden Christian? Yes, she also, or he also, bears fruit. Because it's coming from the inside out. Days are coming, brethren, when I'm not going to be able to preach anymore. If God lets me live. I hope it never comes to that. I hope I die before that day. Because God's called me to preach, and right, you know, preach is in me. I, I got to preach. But what if God brings an old age on me and I'm too feeble and too frail? Am I no longer profitable in the kingdom of God? Am I now, because I'm bedridden or because something has happened, my voice, what if I get throat cancer? I knew a preacher once, got throat cancer. We all prayed. We prayed for him because a preacher without a voice, right? And God healed it. And he's still preaching today. Well, God can do that. But what if something happens? I've told you the story about William Carey. William Carey was a, uh, left England in 1792 and went to India uh, with his wife and a couple of children. His sister had such a burden to go with him. And before he left, she got sick and ended up in bed. And he had to leave without her. And she didn't get well. Instead, there was this slow 
steady year after year decline in health as she wrote letters to her brother in India and he would write back to her and she would weep over not being able to be with him in India and he would write back and say you're praying for me and God hears the prayers of his people and she said being assured I am praying for you I am praying for India I am praying for the success of the gospel in that nation and she dies bedridden and somebody gathers up all these letters and they begin to read and what a child of God who understood it makes no difference where I am in my life God can use me and later when William Carey working in India wrote about her my most faithful supporter prayed for me every day she's in glory and so is he both bore fruit both bore fruit working class Christians they go to work they work 8, 10, 12 hours a day and they come home and they're tired and they, and they got family and they got, and they got a yard and they got cars to work on and life what about them? yeah they bear fruit too Christian businessmen, they got not only all of that, and they got on top of that all the responsibilities of laborers and books and all the accounting and all the rest of that. They too? Yes, those two. Those two. I was working 70 hours a week after God saved me. 70 hours a week. You add up the hours. That doesn't leave you much time, right? Got a wife and children and, and church services and 70 hours a week. I was tired I'll leave it to God to say whether I brought for, bore fruit in that day but I believe I did what about Christians in the military they, they're on the front they are, or they're training or they're here or there what about those people do they train do they bring forth fruit yeah they bring forth fruit what about law enforcement what about that policeman that is a Christian that stands on the conviction of Christianity and seeks to enforce the law. Yes. What about the stay-at-home mom? Surrounded by a bunch of little kids hanging on the aprons. You know? And don't tell me you don't know about that. You know, my kids hung on to my wife's aprons. Don't tell me you don't know about little kids gathered around. Washing dishes, preparing meals, right? Maybe you don't, but mopping and sweeping. Ironing. Maybe you don't do these things. But what about that kind of wife, that mother? Yeah, she bears fruit. Not much glory in that, is it? The world doesn't see that as an exalted position. God does, but not the world. God doesn't see the prayers you pray. I mean, the world doesn't see the prayers you pray for that little one to be saved. Doesn't see the time you gather those little ones around for a few minutes of devotion around the Word of God. Sowing the seed, hoping someday God might do something in the heart. Nobody sees that. God called preachers, missionaries, they bring forth fruit. They, I hope so. I hope I do. Everyone that is a Christian bears fruit. And then the last phrase, because we're running out of time. So shall you be my disciples. Glorifying God in fruit bearing is biblical proof that we are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
so shall you be. People will see this is a disciple of Jesus Christ. They took note of them that they had been with Jesus. We don't prove our Christianity by a mere profession, a mere statement of words and live our life any way we want to. That's not Christianity. Words spoken without a life to back it up, that's not Christianity. Yet true Christianity requires a profession of faith. We must stand and testify, I have repented of my sins and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. But neither do we prove our Christianity by a full measure of good works without a profession. Look at all my works. Well, what about Christ? Well, I'm serving the Lord. What about Christ? Well, I'm doing my best. No. Only true Christianity takes the profession that I have repented of myself and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And now I'm seeking by my works to glorify my Father which is in heaven. Only true Christianity puts those two things together. And so, our Lord is speaking to those who have already believed. Who already had their faith tested and have stood the test for three and a half years already. And those who have already borne some fruit in their life, but they're going to bear more fruit. They're going to be purged and bear more fruit. Notice our Lord said in verse 8, that you bear much fruit. The word bear here in verse 8 means that the child of God begins to bear and continues to bear. It wasn't, well, I can look back, Brother Pat, I, I got 10 years ago I did this. No, what about the last 10 years? What, well, I, you know, uh, about 10 or 11 years ago I, I did that. It's not that. But it's today. It continues. In August of 75, God saved me. What have you been doing for all these years? I've been trying to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow His Word. Bear to begin and to continue. Much, woof. Much fruit. Fruit may be seen, but much fruit. What is that? Listen carefully. The word much is defined by God. Not by those looking on. Ah, uh, nah, he's not a Christian. Don't see anything. Don't see anything. Right, look, look. I don't see a thing. Don't see a thing in his life. He's not a Christian. Not by those who may be genuine Christians and who have some idea about what Christian fruit is and have walked with God for 40 years and say, whoa, brother, that's not... I don't see any fruit in your life. Whoa, back off a little. You remember when you were three years old in the Lord? I, I actually do. I, you remember when you were three months old in the Lord? I actually do. What is much fruit? Well, let me settle it this morning. Much fruit... Defined by God. Not by your religion, not by some preacher, and not some, by some well-meaning Christian. Defined by God. Remember that verse over there in Mark, chapter 4, verse 8 and verse 20? Christians will bear some 30, 
some 60, some 100. Christians do not always bear at the same level. I got, or it, I'll get to this in a minute, or at the same time. I had several peach trees. I bought them on purpose. These would produce fruit in May. These would produce fruit in June. And these would produce fruit in July. They're all dead but one now. And I'm trying to keep that thing alive. And I don't know whether it's going to be May, June, or July. I'll have to wait till next year. Or it may die over the winter. I'm not sure what's going on. 30, 60, 100. Well, you say, I want to be 100. That's not your decision. That's God's. God is the one that brings forth the fruit out of you. And besides, to the one bringing forth 30, we're not supposed to compare ourselves with the one bringing forth 100. What does the Bible tell us about comparing ourselves one with another? This was the great error in the Corinthians. I got this gift, you don't have it, you must not be spiritual. I got this ability, you don't have it, you must not be spiritual. Wait a minute, God is the one that's in charge of that. Christians do not always bear the same level of, of, of fruit. Some Christians have been greatly damaged. That fruit tree that I'm nurturing, have been nurturing now for two years, the goats uh, rubbed their heads on it and took the bark off. And when the bark came off, they started eating it. And they stripped the bark on one side. And there's only a little bit of moisture coming up out of the soil to feed that tree. And I'm trying to nurture that thing. Guess what happened last year? The grasshoppers ate it down to a twig. It's been damaged. Still hoping to see this next year that there might be some fruit on. How many sitting in this room have been damaged? Damaged by the world. Damaged by their past. Damaged by some well-meaning Christian coming along. Damaged and trying to recover and get a better footing on what is true Christianity. And in that state, you're not going to be producing much. But God can heal from the inside out. And God can fix things like that. Christians do not always bear at the same level. But in addition, Christians do not always bear at the same time. Remember Psalm 1 verse 3? Psalm 1 verse 3, And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit what? In his season. He brings forth his fruit in his season. In the season that God brings it forth. Now, now some of you are gardeners and you know that if you plant a certain uh, cucumber that uh, really by the end of April or the first of May it's gone. It's finished. The heat just destroys it. Well, this year we planted a cucumber that grows in kind of a hot, arid area. And guess what? We picked cucumbers off that thing in August. Well, that's its season. The others are gone, long gone. They died. They had their season. They're gone. If that's true in the natural world, it's true in the spiritual world. When am I going to start bearing fruit? Well, you already are. Maybe you can't see it, but God's working. And it'll come out in His season. And you keep on following the Lord Jesus Christ. You keep on abiding in Him. You keep on searching His Word and His Word abiding in you. 
God determines the seasons of our life and the fruit born in each season. Our desire for our churches, it might grow, right? I mean, have we prayed and we've sung, uh, we long to see thy churches full, right? Busting out of the seams, as in days gone by. It doesn't seem to be the season for it, but who knows what God may bring next year or next week or next month. So we pray and we wait, because only God can do that. Jesus said, I will build my church. And we wait, and we begin. 1983, I began with three, two, three families and a handful of children. One left, four adults and a handful of children. By 1989, the place was packed. We were preaching the gospel in Mexico. We were preaching the gospel in India. And we were planting churches in San Antonio, Texas. Well, that was a long season sitting there with four adults. Preaching every Sunday. Praying that God would build his church. While we wait on God, we pray. Lord, give us fruit. Lord, may my life count in this generation in which you have placed me. Sinner, if you desire to have fruit for God, you need Christ as a Savior first. It is Christ in you that is the hope of glory. It is Christ in you that bears the fruit out. You call upon Him. You repent of your sins and you embrace Him. And He begins to put in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight. Christians, where are we at? We examine ourselves. Lord, where am I at? What does my life mean? What is, kind of life do I have? How is it impacting others? My counsel is trust God to work in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Look for the opportunities to love somebody, to love those that are around you. Look for the opportunity to minister to somebody. Take the opportunity to help. Look for opportunities to bring forth more fruit, much fruit. And do it for the glory of God and not for your own recognition. And I'm glad that we have people reaching out to others. I'm glad God has opened doors for us in the community. I'm glad for that. And we wait upon God to bring forth the fruit from it. And we pray and we seek His face. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and He will exalt us in due time. We're casting our cares upon Him. We know He cares for us. And we're waiting, Lord, we're waiting. In the meantime, I want to serve you. I want to serve you. Help me. Let's pray together.